Lee Jaffe, a cross-disciplinary visual artist, musician, and poet, took photos of his friend, Jean-Michel Basquiat, when they traveled abroad in 1983. As a photographer, Jaffe had a connection to Basquiat, and their time spent together resulted in an archive of imagery that captured one of the art world's true legends through an unfiltered and authentic lens. Basquiat and Jaffe connected over reggae music. It was the early 1980s in New York. Jaffe had been a member of Bob Marley's band, producer on Peter Tosh's first solo album, and collaborated with art world figures Helio Oichisika, Gordon Mata Clark, and Vito Aconchi. He is the author of Jean-Michel Basquiat, Crossroads. Lee Jaffe, welcome to The Creative Process. I'm so happy to be here. Well, we're so happy to speak with you. Just looking over your body of work, you're a photographer, a writer, a musician. You're a complete artist, but focusing first on your book, Basquiat Jaffe, Crossroads. I've never seen images of Basquiat like that. Just tell us how that relationship began. Well, I had a teacher in college, an art professor who was very much responsible for me understanding what art was and could be and allowed me to become an artist, really. His name was Ithilo Skanga, and we became lifelong friends and collaborators early on from when I was in school. And he was having an exhibition at LACMA. This is in 1983, LA County Museum of Art. I was living in New York at the time, and I flew out to go to his opening. And Jean-Michel was there. He had had a show in New York in a gallery, and I had recently seen that and was really impressed by it. And he was the only Black person at this opening. (laughs) And somebody said, that's Jean-Michel Basquiat. And I went over and we started talking. And he was very much a musicologist, and he knew everything about Jamaican music. And when I introduced myself, work with Bob Marley and the Whalers, and in particular with Peter Tosh and producing his first solo album, Legalize It. And we connected on the music. At what age were you both at that time? Because you sense a real evolution and you traveled to so many countries together. What did you discover about yourself in that process? What was he discovering about himself? What did you only discover looking back at those images years later? Well, I feel lucky that I had a camera with me because in those days, it was all very new to me. We went to Japan and Thailand and Switzerland, these places I had never been to. I had been to a bunch of places in Europe. I spent a year living in Paris. I was in a show in Germany, but I'd never been to Zurich. So it was all very exciting and new. And I was excited to meet him. I felt that when I first met Bob Marley, I was really impressed by his powerful presence and humility. And I felt the same kind of thing when I met Jean Michel. I had seen his exhibition, and I felt an affinity with his paintings and his poetry. I didn't know that he was Samo and that he had been painting on the walls and and the streets in Lower Manhattan. But I was very moved by the Samo stuff. It was using the whole city as this visual poetry. This is in Samaritz. 
Oh, so doing those huge paintings, even as you're traveling, it's kind of hard to even imagine that. Yeah, so Jean-Michel had been invited to this vacation home of an art dealer that Andy Warhol made an introduction to. And we were kind of on this vacation, although Jean-Michel was like working all the time drawing. and He was kind of obsessive. And you spoke about him being a musicologist. You know, what just describes some of these days when the art making wasn't made, you know, in the mornings and, and the evenings, what that time was like? Well, I was discovering. I mean, when we went to Japan, he had been invited by Isi Miyake to do a photo shoot. And so I went with them to that. They had a bucket of white paint and a big brush. And I encouraged him to start throwing the paint around. And the assistants and the photo shoot were getting really nervous because it was going on the clothes. But the photographer liked it. Some of those pictures have been published with the paint flying around. Pretty terrific, actually. And then he invited us to dinner. And it was in this fancy restaurant. And there were two big tables. And Nisi Miyake didn't speak any English. And he was surrounded by his entourage. And then we were at this other table. We never really had any interaction. And then we were off to Thailand. Thailand was disappointing. We got a taxi and we wanted to try to find some cannabis. Thailand was kind of famous for having the best herb at the time. And he drove us around and around and wound up in this kind of speakeasy, knocked on the door. And we thought we were going to be buying some herb and it was a brothel it was this like sex club and the and the girls were naked and they were wearing numbers like signs hanging from their neck with numbers so you could pick out the number or the girl or whatever it was really horrible it was really scary and we left we got the guy to find us some herb and then checked into this hotel It was kind of palatial kind of hotel. And we asked where we could go outside of Bangkok. And someone suggested that we go to Pattaya, which was a beach town and several hour drive. We got a car. And when we got to Pattaya, it was a Thai national holiday. It was mobbed. The beach was totally crowded. And there was an American destroyer, naval destroyer, parked in front of the beach. So it was all these Thai tourists mingled with these U.S. naval people. It was kind of felt like apocalypse now. And we hired a little boat, and they dropped us on this little island, which was quite beautiful. And we stayed there a few days. And then we went to Zurich. You know, it's a huge tapestry of influences. And are you able to piece together like a certain biography and the paintings that were happening at that time? Like as you're traveling, did you find the symbols or little notations? Did that find its way into certain paintings? Oh, Jean-Michel was the sponge of, of the now. Also very much an art historian. I think some of the things about his paintings, in particular about Cubism and Picasso, because in the 21st century and 2022, you can view Picasso as this cultural appropriator. 
And it's interesting because Picasso had never gone to Africa. So he was just getting his information in Paris Museum. And Jean Michel is kind of deconstructing that. It goes back to Durer and the Renaissance and the beginning of colonialism. And I think in Picasso, you see the culmination of this colonialist appropriation. And it also speaks to ego. And I remember we had this guy had discussions with Jean Michel about Durer and about how Durer was this. I guess you could say the first Western art star. He was the first person to sign things. And he had a manager. His wife was his manager, and she was brilliant at it. And they were doing tours around Europe. And it's kind of the beginning of ego in in art. It's the roots of the star system and how it's entwined with colonialism and religion and the excuse for slavery. I think it's very interesting, this kind of turning appropriation, the European artist appropriation of African art that it's gone through, or in Picasso's case, as you say, actually going to the source in Africa, you know, items that it brought over or appropriated or stolen by collectors in this kind of colonial imperialist way. And then Basquiat critiquing that in his own work. It explains how it speaks to us on so many levels. And It's really like a mystery. I was having a conversation around the time of the 500th anniversary of Da Vinci with one of the Louvre's consultant experts. You know, he's so much into the purity of the lines and the harmony of Da Vinci. And just out of the blue, he started discussing Basquiat. And the appreciation for his work really extends to so many different communities. What for you makes his art enduring? Well, there's a number of things. I mean, he didn't start this, but his combination of words and images, this visual poetry, just from a cultural standpoint, when I met him in 1983, Black people were not allowed in the art market, pretty much. And you see that he's broke down this barrier, which opened the door for all this multiculturalism within the art market. And you can't diminish the importance of that at all. It's helped to give a voice and an audience to all these incredible artists that might not have had that. Yeah, and it's really unique, although there have been people who would try to bring out Basquiat-type paintings, which would be frustrating for you as such a close friend. I guess there have been some Basquiat fakes on the market. I don't know if you want to talk about that or what makes them so obviously fake. I'm not the one to say what makes them obviously fake, but they do look fake, like these ones they had in Florida, and they pop up. I mean, his hand is so much a part of the thing, his gestures. So you can make something that very, very superficially looks like that by using certain iconography, but it's hard to reproduce someone's hand all over. Yeah, that's that energy. And I don't know how the paintings came together because it's very curious. We would love to have been there and you were eyewitness. As you say, he was a sponge bringing things in. And I guess some people from the outside like to know about how long something takes, but it's more like the progression of feeling and thinking. So as you saw that, 
you know, you talked about musical influences. How did those different elements, as you saw it, weave their way into the art making and into your own art making, if I may say as well? Well, for him, the context of Jamaican music at the time of, of the 70s and early 80s was definitely an influence. And then jazz, of course, which I don't think it's been explored enough, but when abstract expressionism was starting to happen in New York, many of those painters used to go to the jazz clubs to see, you know, Charlie Parker and then Coltrane and Pharaoh Sanders. And that looks like, to me, that had to be the biggest influence on abstract expressionism, because that's what was happening in New York. They were going to hear that music. And that music was so innovative. The level of proficiency on these classical instruments, and then this breaking down of Western classical musical tradition. And those musicians started to appropriate music from other cultures. You can see why Jean-Michel or how Jean-Michel was so influenced by those musicians. And there's a fantastic show in New York now called King Pleasure, which comes from this King Pleasure song. And it's all about scat singing. It's a pretty terrific show with Sir David Ajay designed the space. It's pretty great. And it's actually uh, Jean-Michel's niece, Sophia, who's this kind of brilliant 20-year-old filmmaker, genius person. She gave the title to the show which I found out recently when I met her. But yeah, it's a combination of, I mean, you feel the music in his paintings. It's interesting how painting can become a translation for music. And you yourself, when you're painting, you're always listening to music. Is there a point where you need to have the silence to make the painting itself sing? Yeah, I think it's both. When I am painting, yeah, I'm listening to music a lot. And sometimes you need to stop and have some silence. But Jean-Michel was listening to music all the time. So I could be in his studio and he can be carrying on a conversation and there'd be music and he wouldn't stop painting, which was kind of really exciting. I mean, there's all this stuff going on and then you're watching it. This is a masterpiece. And I used to, I played with Bob Marley. I played in his band and I was living in his house for three years in Jamaica. Oh before he became this big thing. We were struggling to find an audience. But I was a harmonica player, and I would sit with him while he was on acoustic guitar, and he'd be making up these songs. It just seemed like it was coming from some otherworldly place. This incredible inspiration. It was like, I would just be like shaking. I'd be like playing harmonica, and I didn't know whether I should stop because it was just so brilliant, or I better keep going. Not to lose the, uh, not to interrupt his feeling. And watching Jean paint, it was like that. It was like Bob Marley making a song. I have to tell you, I felt like I was witnessing this cultural events. And I just happened to be there. I was just like, wow, playing harmonica. I'm not the best harmonica, but I'm okay. But I happened to be there. You know, you say you're not the best harmonica player, but you establish trust with them. And I'm just curious about how that happens, because 
by being that kind of person, whoever you were, you could capture these magic photographs that I haven't seen that sense of intimacy. I imagine you could describe this process a little bit, but they were able to get to this place because, you know, there's some people that they're just so uptight. They don't know how to read a room, like you flunk them somewhere and they can kill a vibe. So I think that there's something very much about you that it's just like you can tune into people. I met Jean-Michel. I had had a lot of preparation to have a dialogue with him. So when I dropped out of college, I went to Brazil and I wound up in Rio living in Elio Wojciechowski's house. And it was a time of great political repression. People on the left were disappearing. There was a group of artists and musicians and writers who were creating things against the military government. When I arrived in Rio in 1969, Caetano Veloso and Gilberto Gil, they had been imprisoned. They were in exile. They were let out of prison on condition they would leave the country. They were living in England. It was dangerous to be an artist saying anything against the government. It was the time of the Vietnam War, towards the end of the civil rights movement. Which, I mean, it's never really ended, but there were the assassinations of all the Black Panthers and Malcolm X and Martin and RFK in 68, which very much pushed me into, I mean, I wanted to travel. I wanted to find out what the world was like, but was kind of a, of a last straw when RFK was assassinated. Because then it was like, there is no law. The United States has no law. If there's political opposition, you'll just die. And then I was in Brazil and it was very palpable. It wasn't, there's no disguise, there's no veneer. I remember being on a beach. I'd only been in Brazil for a few weeks and I was seeing this girl. She was a student leader. And we went to the beach on a weekday. It wasn't all that crowded. It's a little before carnival. And she pointed out this family, blonde hair, blue eyed, early 30s couple with two young, under five year old kids. And she pointed them out. She said, Well, don't look now, but that guy over there is here from the CIA and he's teaching the police how to torture. Wow, just like sitting on the beach, his kids are playing. It's the afternoon, lunchtime from his uh, job of teaching torturers. Anyway, I was blessed to find that Elio Wojcicki found me. When I dropped out of school and I was in New York and starting a band and the bass player who was buying all the equipment we hadn't even started rehearsing yet. He had a friend who was a pharmacist and he was making the purest meth. And the bass player was supplying the Warhol factory with meth. And everyone at the factory was on meth. And they were financing all this amplifiers and instruments and microphones. And before we ever rehearsed one note we had this this place in brooklyn where we we're going to start rehearsing this guy comes 
with a van and another guy and a sort of shotgun and steals all the gear. And the bass player found out from the people in the factory who the person was. Because the factory had some like unsavory characters who didn't have anything to do with art, would pass through. It was kind of an open door until I guess Andy got shot. And they knew about this guy and they told us where he lived. We had contacted the police to try to get the gear back and nothing happened for several weeks. It was January 1st, 1969. It was freezing. And the guy's place was within walking distance. It was like half a mile away from where we had our place. And I remember traipsing through the ice. It snowed a week before and it was freezing all week. And it was all this dirty New York garbage mixed with this frozen snow and ice. And we're traipsing through and it's like 10 degrees outside. Walk up this and we, I, I had a switchblade and our bass player, he, he had a hunting night. And it was like this abandoned building and this guy was squatting on the top floor, on the fifth floor walk up. And we, we bang on the door and my friend's on one side of the door. I'm on the other side. The door flies open and we have guns at our heads and it's the police. They had staked out the place to try to catch the guy who's wanted for murder. So they arrested us. They were pissed that we were there. And they threw us in the tombs on weapons charge, possession of a deadly weapon. I got bailed out and I had a friend who had just come back from Brazil. And he told me that you could sell LSD to the surfers in Rio for $50 a trip. And I could buy it in New York for 25 cents. And you could buy it on a blotter or a piece of paper. So you could have like, 25 trips on a blotter and you can have like four of these and put it in a book. I bought a thousand trips for $250 and I said, okay, I'm going to Rio. And I didn't know anybody, but my friend gave me a phone number. One of the surfers, he said, this is the only phone number you need. And I scraped together a couple hundred bucks to get a really cheap flight from New York. It took me 23 hours to get to Rio changed planes in Miami and then in Lima and stopped in Guayaquil and I arrived in Rio, got in a taxi. I had $70 and I checked into the Copacabana Palace, not knowing how I was going to pay for it, but I had this phone number and I called this guy and a half hour later he shows up and I had a thousand trips. So he bought a hundred trips and then I had money. I had money to pay the hotel and Everybody in the art world and music world and Rio wanted to know me. So it was like this introduction. And that's how I met Elio Wojcicka. And he invited me to come and stay at his house. He had a big house, Jardim Botanico on the hill underneath uh, the Christ and overlooking Lagoa or out to the Atlantic. It was a spectacular spot. And it was kind of like the anti-factory. I mean, I never went to the factory. I was too scared to go to the factory because I felt like all these people were just like getting exploited by Andy. Like everything was about Andy. And I knew there was really talented people there, poets, filmmakers, whatever. But everything was about Andy. It's all about Andy and ego and star system. 
there's the um, culmination of Durer signing his name. And then into the 20th century, there's Picasso. I mean, why is Hannah Hock not more important than Picasso? Well, she is. She's a lot more important than Picasso. If you look at art now. You know, I think that so many people were pulled into Andy Warhol's orbit. I mean, I only know in second, third, fourth, fifth hand. So I think it's very fascinating. But that you said no, that you saw that there was like a darkness or an exploitativeness to people. Yeah, Elio's house was exactly the opposite. So on the one hand, he was this magnet for all these incredible people. Like he had given the name to this cultural movement, Tropicalia. So in 1967, he had this installation, this multimedia installation at Museum of Modern Art in Rio called Tropicalia, and then Caetano Veloso produced this album called Tropicalia, which was culturally and musically a seminal record that Jard um, Macalette produced. And of course, it was very political. And Elio, I mean, you could really view Elio as the beginning of installation art because that piece had so much impact. And well, of course, it's been shown over the last, especially over the last 15, 20 years. But how important is that? Elio was this inclusive person. Like when you spoke to Elio, you knew he was like much smarter than you. Like he was the most brilliant person. He had read every bit of Western philosophy. But he, he elevated you. He made you feel that you were a lot smarter than you ever thought you were. And it was just inspiring to be around him which is why so many people were drawn to him and got to work with so many incredible people just by being around Elio, Nabili Dalmeda and Rogerio Scanzella and Elena Inez, these incredible filmmakers, and Miguel Rio Branco, such a genius. So living under that repression and the intensity of it, and being amongst these people who were being so courageous in their work, knowing that they could, you know, disappear. People would disappear. And Elio used to dance in the samba school in Manguera. Then he used to take me sometimes to the favela. So my Brazilian experience was a kind of preparation for meeting Bob Marley and getting invited to Jamaica for 10 days and wound up staying for three years. But Bob could take me to Trenchtown where he would go every day. And I wasn't intimidated because of this experience I had in, in Brazil. It didn't seem dangerous to me. Like I had like lived through this other thing. I was in jail in, in Rio for being around these people. You know, I spent this time in prison like that was scary because you don't know if you're coming out. And I was with Bob naively. I thought, didn't think I was in danger. But of course, I was very naive the whole time I was living in what became Bob's house. It was originally uh, Chris Blackwell had bought it. It was an old colonial great house, not far from where the prime minister residence. It was kind of a bit run down. And there was a yard in back of the house with a giant number 11 mango tree that seemed to like 
always have a thousand mangoes, whether they were in season or not. You always seemed like there was ripe mangoes. And behind it, at the end of the yard, there was a shack. And when I first got to Kingston, the shack, the whalers had converted it to a small rehearsal studio. This is 1973 when I arrived there. They had just finished recording their first album for Island Records. It's called Catch a Fire. And at that time, outside of Jamaica and the Jamaican diaspora, nobody knew who Bob Marley was or the Whalers or Peter Tosh. They were heroes in the ghetto in, in Jamaica. You know, for the poor people, they were the voice of the sufferers. And, you know, that extended to the Jamaican diaspora and London and in Bork. But outside of that, nobody knew they were. When I arrived there, the shack of the slave quarters, that Peter Tosh was there, and this music's coming out, and they're rehearsing the song, as well as rhythm section and keyboardist at the time, Wyatt Lindell, Carlton Barrett, Aston Barrett, the rhythm section. And they're rehearsing the song called 400 Years, which I had heard because I had heard the cassette of the unreleased album. But it was, I mean, it's coming out of the shack where it had been living, cramped in this little thing, taking care of the colonialists. It was so powerful. I didn't want to leave. So that's how I got involved in the Jamaica thing. That Jamaican experience is what allowed me to have a dialogue with, with Jean-Michel. It was, you know, my involvement in these cultural, social, political movements. That those experiences in, in Brazil and in Jamaica, that's what informed our conversation. Listening to Lee Jaffe talk about his relationships and experiences with artists like Basquiat and Bob Marley shed some light on the chaotic nature of the lives many creatives seem to lead. This chaos isn't necessarily a force of evil. It's clear that the lives of Jaffe and his friends and colleagues are full of meaningful and often joyful moments. But at times, the trope of the tortured artist seems to ring true. Lee Jaffe's vivid descriptions of his time in places like Jamaica and New York are beautiful, but often harrowing. Though he speaks with a quiet confidence, and the emotion behind his words is palpable, Jaffe's descriptions looking in on intense poverty, civil unrest, and drug use adds a bit of an edge to this interview. This, taken in conjunction with the complexity of emotion displayed in the artistry of both Basquiat and Marley, brings me to the question, what is it about being a creative that breeds such a frequent connection to suffering? To me, the only possible answer is that art and music are powerful healers. The expression of ourselves through art is not only cathartic, it also acts as relief. The human experience and the feelings that come along with it are usually complex and multifaceted, often difficult to describe with a phrase or conversation. The arts allow us to relate with one another by portraying shared experiences in a way that goes beyond words, into the soul rather than the mind, so to speak. Jaffe's book Crossroads, which details his friendship with Basquiat as well as the art scene of the early 80s, encompasses how art can be such a joining force. In his moving and cinematic account of his life, both by interview and on paper, it's clear that the arts are a source of his passion and energy, and hearing him discuss his life and process reinforced my admiration for him. And Jean-Michel was into music. I mean, he was a musicologist. 
It's so amazing to think about everything is so processed now and synthesized and auto-tuned and to think of music that's coming out of a shack with, you know, the history behind that, this whole archaeology. And I can't even imagine music production being so organically of a time and place. If you could just describe that a little bit more so we really understand because everything's so packaged and sanitized now. Yeah, well, it was alive. It, it was alive, immediate. It was visceral. And that experience of arriving in Kingston and hearing the music coming out of this shack. I mean, I didn't know absolutely that slaves lived there or that this was, you know, cologne. I mean, I, I was just arriving in Jamaica. This was all new. I didn't know anything about it. Although I had seen this movie, The Harder They Come. This Jamaican movie that Jamaican produced, Chris Blackwell, the Island Records founder produced it with Jamaican director Perry Hensel. That it was very much about colonialism and Rasta is my introduction to what the Rasta culture. So I had had a little bit of an inauguration into that from seeing that movie, but still arriving and hearing this. It was one thing to hear it on a cassette, which was overpowering. I mean, when I first heard that cassette and the first song is Concrete Jungle, it was the first Whalers album, it was before Peter Tosh and Bunny left and they were just called The Whalers, not Bob Marley and The Whalers. And the first song was Concrete Jungle. The, the impact, the, the idea, Concrete Jungle, I mean, that's so crucial. It, goes, it starts off with no sun will shine in my day to day. The hot yellow moon won't come out to play in this here concrete jungle where the living is hardest. I was like, oh my God, this is like the most genius thing I ever heard. And it's like so relevant now, sadly. I mean, we're over 40 years from when I first heard that. We're almost, what are we, 50 years. It's crazy. That song can't be any less relevant now than it was then. Anyway, the biggest struggle is to be optimistic. Seeing the political situation in the United States now is its so difficult to understand. And then yesterday, I saw this statistic that nearly 50% of the population in the United States has less than a third grade literacy. So on the one hand, now you understand what's going on, which you kind of felt in some way. But then to see it, it's very, very, I mean, I remember like in the early 2000s, I had so much hope for the internet that it was going to democratize the distribution or in particular music, especially when file sharing started. I said, oh, wow, this is great. At that time, there were five major record companies. And then they conspired with MTV to give MTV all this free, big production content. And you couldn't really sell a lot of records unless you were on MTV and unless you had this big budget for this video. And then started, artists were exploited from the beginning of radio. So I thought, oh, wow, now we're going to have file sharing and we have the internet and there's going to be all this information. This is going to transform the world. We're going to have this incredible end of poverty. And instead, we get fascism. We get Bolsonaro. 
And it's really scary. On the other hand, I'm listening to some of your podcasts, which I've been doing a lot recently. It's really um, pushed me to try to be uh, optimistic because the pessimism is very oppressive. It makes you not want to owe me anyway. It makes me not want to work. So I'm really pushing myself to be consciously optimistic. Looking at you, I'm seeing your amazing work across different disciplines and then the photographs that you are able to capture and the people, people mirror each other. So I see you as a very positive person, a person who's, you know, been in jail and smiling through it all and someone who is full of kindness and a spirit of adventure. This is a situation of the world have to be bad for you to find, <laughs> to find pessimism in them because I see you as an overall an optimistic person. But I think it's really important for us is to go with our eyes open and then maybe have a bit of pessimism just because you know when there were better times, complicated times, but you, you had this experience of freedom that maybe is, a, is hard for people to access. Freedom in the age of COVID. Now, I live in this apartment in New Jersey. It's right on the Hudson River and it overlooks the whole river all the way down from the George Washington Bridge. I live right by the George Washington Bridge. It connects northern Manhattan to New Jersey. And I, I look down and I see the whole New York skyline all the way down to the Statue of Liberty. And one day I'm looking out the window and there's this boat coming, a hospital boat, because they don't have enough hospital beds you know, in the first COVID surge. And I watched it coming up the harbor. And it was like, okay, it's the Hudson River. It's where Henry Hudson came up in 1609 or something. It's following the same route. And it's a hospital. My partner, she's a nurse practitioner. And she was overseeing the care of over 100 kidney patients. And she's watching them die. So it's still not over. I mean, it's not like it was. Okay. I, I lost some really close friends in the beginning. It's kind of like AIDS was in the beginning. But it's taken away freedom, like two years of freedom. So trying to be optimistic. Yeah. And just thinking about some of those places as you look back at Jamaica or, or Brazil or these places that you knew then and what do you feel about them now? I know that New York has changed a lot. I don't have a point of comparison for Jamaica or Brazil or you also lived in Los Angeles for a while. These other places that informed you, you know, artistically and informed your life. Well, no, it's like T.S. Eliot, time past, time present, all contained in time future. You know, and now I'm like three quarters of a century old. So it's a time and time and future. I just recently had a birthday and it's the first time I've really acknowledged. So I tried to live in the present. And now, since watching the past couple of weeks, all these, listening to all your podcasts, Bruce Mao was talking about optimism, really kind of pushing me and inspiring me to keep going. 
That's such a nice thing to say. I mean, I feel there's a curatorial process within the selection of those that we invite. It is for those people who bend towards the light or really contributed, such as yourself, to our understanding of the world, of the creative process, obviously, but have this kind of embracing open personality. So I I really appreciate that comment that you make because it does inspire the next generation, which who are kind of confused, they're finding their way, but you know, it's it's all a continuation. And in terms of your creative output, you were talking about reflections during COVID and you also write, you have a number of projects going. So there's an optimism that you're currently working on um, dread progress. Tell us a little bit about that. So it's based on the notion or the reality of, quote unquote, underdeveloped, a lot of underdeveloped countries where there are parallel governments and underserved communities. My experience is, of course, in Jamaica. So in 2010 or 2011, in Jamaica, there was, was the time of the Obama administration. And there was, at that time, the prime minister in Jamaica, Bruce Golden, had come up through a constituency in West Kingston neighborhood. It used to be called back a wall, like you back against the wall. And then the government, I think it's in the 60s, built a kind of housing project and they changed the name of the neighborhood to Tivoli Gardens. So flash forward to 2010, and all these poor neighborhoods, impoverished neighborhoods, are not served by the traditional government. This particular neighborhood was supported by someone they called Prezi, as in president. So in Jamaica, there's no presidents. It's prime minister, goes by the British model. So the prime minister was Bruce Golding, but he had started his political career in this Tivoli neighborhood. And the head of the Tivoli neighborhood, they called him Prezi because he was bringing money from the United States. He built a hospital. He was giving all the kids school books and clothes and medicine and Some of the things the government wasn't providing. So he was kind of the head of this organization of exporting cannabis. Jamaica became a stopover place for South America for cocaine. And the American government was trying to get him expedited. And because the prime minister at the time was supported and came up through this Tivoli neighborhood. He was refusing to extradite, to arrest. And Jamaica is like that, Jamaica is a movie. So the Obama administration, they're refusing to send an ambassador to Jamaica until the prime minister sends them to the dawn of Tivoli. And it's a stalemate. It goes on for a year. Finally, the government, the U.S. government put so much pressure that he gave in, ordered his arrest, and the people refused. So they barricaded the neighborhood. The police wouldn't go there. They sent in the army. 
And it went on for weeks and weeks and hundreds of people died in shootouts. You can go on YouTube and listen to the gunshots and people screaming. And anyway, so I'm working with some Jamaicans, street artists and scholars and movie makers and developing recreation of Tivoli and conceived as this kind of multidisciplinary critique of parallel governments. So interestingly, I think the next step we need to have in our process of making this kind of a real thing is we need an injection of optimism. I can certainly circulate it for others and maybe to our, our students who may, I mean, a number of them, we you know, wanted to take a part in this, but Colette suddenly got sick, but I can certainly circulate it because sometimes they can add a different perspective or they're different artist groups. But yeah, you know, it's definitely an interesting story. And sometimes when something is so complex, I understand that you can kind of get, you know, how do you condense this to its essence? So it's important always to have that moment of uh, rumination so that things settle. I want to ask you, though, as you think about the future and this amazing, beautiful, vagabond life full of curiosity that you've had, and if you could model that or share some of that wisdom to, uh, for the next generation, you know, what for you is the importance of the arts and what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Okay. Yeah. So I met Bob Marley. I saw, wow, you could really, you know, he was an artist, he was a poet, he was a musician, and all the people around him, the artists around him that he was working with collaboratively, I was like, wow, you can really make an impact and change people's minds and move the world in a positive direction. So yeah, we can. And you've shown that. I think that people respond to that nature in you. I want to thank you, Lee Jaffe, for your photography, which bears witness to some of the blazing talents in music and art with intimacy and honesty. Your art, which brings light to these enduring friendships and marginalized communities and important issues of our time. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Well, thank you for including me. I appreciate it. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producer on this podcast was Colette Godier. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Amadolis and performed by the Anthenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions and podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.